are back live on Facebook. I'm Mike Scala, joined again by a timid Carter, hip hop MC slash co-chair BLM Tokyo. It is nine o'clock in the morning in Tokyo right now. It is nine o'clock in the morning in Tokyo and it's overcast right now. Good morning to you. It is raining here in New York. <laughs> uh, well, we've got snow over here. I'm probably trying to change. We also have a very special guest with us this week, consultant Michael Lambert. How are you, Michael? Mike is doing well. Thank you very much, Mike. <laughs> Thanks <laughs> oh, for having me. Not I'm a surrounded now. Yes. And I wanted to congratulate you. We'll get to a little bit later on on your big win in East New York, helping thank you, thank you, assembly member out in Appreciate East. that. But we like to start off with something on the lighter side. And Bel Air, new show. I think we've all seen it. What are our thoughts? I like it. <laughs> Go ahead, Michael. <laughs> I was going to say, you know, it's funny because, you know, I, I watched the original, obviously, growing up. And I thought it was uh, interesting the way that it's not necessarily a comedy, per se. Uh, it's got some comic relief moments in it. But I think it's like a real story that's like true to life that a lot of people can relate to probably more so than the original sitcom. You know, I think it took like some of the more gritty aspects of the sitcom and made that pretty much the underlying theme. So, I, you know, I thought it was good. I thought they had some uh, good character development. You know, I think uh, the storyline is pretty good. It's interesting the way they kind of like changed Carlton's character a bit. I thought that was quite interesting. Um, Ooh, yeah. Overall, I think it's pretty good. They really, they really did some thing changes with Carlton, though. <laughs> Yo. Right. And I liked um, it as well, but I think that was perhaps the source of the disconnect with me. The fact mm. that using all the same character names, they're having it take place in the present day. And so it's kind of hard for me to buy into a world where the original Fresh Prince just doesn't exist, right? Because if it did, they would always scream, we have the same names as the Fresh Prince. You know, obviously that we're supposed to watch a show thinking that never happened. But it's so foundational to the hip hop culture, it's kind of hard for me to get into it. Like it's hard for me to, to look at Carlton even in a different light or Hillary, any of these characters in such a different light. And they're playing J. Cole songs a lot. There's P.D. Crack, there's a lot of Philly hip hop in there. I, I can't buy into a world in which these these artists came up without Fresh Prince being an influence even. I'm, I'm like so caught up on that. Uh, I know you're supposed to kind of take that with a grain of salt and just watch it as his own show. But to me, hip, Fresh Prince was so foundational to hip hop culture that it's hard to really buy into a world that has hip hop as a very prevalent part of the show, but really erases Fresh Prince from its history. I'm like, are we, so we, are we supposed to believe that J. Cole didn't come up uh, singing in West Philadelphia, born and raised in the mirror? You know what I mean? Like that's kind of what's rubbing me the wrong way about it. Yeah, you're going too deep with it. You're going too deep with it. <laughs> I, I think I, that's I mean, an interesting observation. Yeah, I get what you're saying. Um, but yeah, I I mean, I like the show. Um, it's it is going, it's starting to go a little bit, it is a little bit soap opery to, to some degree. Uh, but other than that, I do like it. I like to take, and I think the 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 story about it, the, the journey to where it got to being made is what's really interesting about it. Um, because this actually started out as a, a short fan-made trailer on YouTube by um, an independent guy, he got together with, with his people and decided to make this reimagining trailer. And, um, and it went viral. Will Smith saw it and was like, wow, that's a hot idea connected with him they they talked chopped it up and then you know will smith shopped it and that's how they got the series and so now there's now a series based on that guy's concept and you know he was just you know a guy that was doing his stuff on youtube type of thing um so it's a, it's a real success story in that right but yeah I, I think it's good i you know i enjoy it it's just so hard to avoid comparisons to the original given that characters are all named the same and you know it's just a recreation in present day which is what they were going for so right. the show for what it is without that so i guess it's right. a double sword because it probably wouldn't have been as big either if it was just some new show that came out but it's still kind of hard for me to buy into it i was talking to big puns widow lisa and i was saying, <laughs> I was saying a bunch of people have said this too i was like it would be like if there was a show where italians were cooking with uh sauce and bread and cheese but nobody said we're making pizza here like to me, like Fresh Prince is so foundational to hip hop culture. I'm waiting for someone to yell out, this is the story of Fresh Prince, or you know what I mean? Or, or how can I buy into everything in hip hop is the same without Fresh Prince being a part of it? 
To me, that's a little hard for me to swallow. But I think, you, you think? so again. No, go ahead. I was gonna say, I think you raise an interesting point though, because if you look at the way that the music was used in the original compared to now, you know, the show wasn't really built around the music. I feel like this current version is built more around like the green, like the meat mill. Yes. Um, you know, really kind of like, you know, this feels like something that's driven by hip hop. Right. Say the original sitcom felt like it was driven by hip hop. It was driven by Will Smith as an artist in the genre. And the whole thing was kind of built around what we knew Will Smith. Will Smith was not a gangster rapper. <laughs> you know what I mean? So the fact that the, that the show was more lighthearted with certain exceptions then and built around like this very bubbly, you know, West Philadelphia born and raised kind of concept compared to like, you know, um, Meek Mill and some of the other real thumping, you know, beats that they're like playing in this one. I think that also kind of gives you like a, a comparison, even though they're similar, that they're just not the same. You know, it's right. one concept has evolved from the original in a very different way that is more applicable to what young people listen to today. Right. You know, people are not going out there bumping, you know, what's Philadelphia born and raised. And it's true. But what did Fresh Prince, the show, do for the Philadelphia hip hop scene? And this, this current version of the show really pays homage to the Philadelphia hip hop scene in a major way. You mentioned, you know, Petey Crack, uh, Meek Mill. Without Will Smith, without the Fresh Prince show even, putting Philly hip hop on the map, would any of those artists have been where they are today? I mean, you really can't say, but to me, it's hard to envision a world in which they exist, but Fresh Prince doesn't. I would agree with that. Yeah, I mean, I see what you're saying. Um, but one of the, that, on that comparison, as far as the music goes, like the first one was very much a sitcom, right? So the music that was played wasn't any, there weren't any hits on the, you know, wasn't any known songs. It was just, you know, jingle music for, for the song. I mean, for, I mean, for the series, whereas this, they're playing hits, they're playing records that people know with that soundtrack. So my, que my question though, off of that though would be, would you prefer a remake with a recasting like, like the original or what we've got now? Hmm. I think watch the original in it's an updated form. I think I'd prefer to see what they're showing now. Mm -hmm. What if it was based loosely on the original concept, but with different character names. It wasn't Will Smith and Carlton Banks and, and Hillary Banks and Philip Banks. Because to me, it, it's, it's, it's almost like it feels sacrilegious in the sense that they're <laughs> messing with the Fresh Prince of Bel-Air, which is again, so foundational to hip hop culture. How can you avoid comparisons with the original when you watch it? It's I not, think it'd be a hard sell. It'd be a hard sell if you did it that way because the hook of this is that it is a reimagining of the something. I agree. That we like yeah. I was saying before, you, it probably wouldn't be what it is. We wouldn't be having this discussion if it was just a random show on Peacock, right? Right. What about how about instead of that? What about a a, a continuation? Now it's 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 Fresh Prince of Bel Air with Will Smith as an adult, and he's got his kids. And see how what happened to his life after the, the series ended. Uh, Mike Michael's like, nah, I don't, I don't care. know if that was the same, man. I'm about to tune into that. <laughs> uh, no, but you, you did know, mention I, also the original they show, with, like Hillary. Even if you look at the Hillary oh, character, yeah, different from like the giddy Hillary of like the sitcom. You know, she's more socially conscious, right? She's actually, like kind of like calling people out on like you know issues of the day. Um, and still doing it in kind of like a lighthearted fit, but I think she's more relatable than the original. And I think that's one she thing. She is more relatable. You're right. I think every character in this version is more relatable than the characters in the sitcom. And maybe that's what I'm feeling. I feel like this is more authentic. Um, and not that it, you know, it had to be a comedy, which is obviously not, but I feel like the character development is more authentic and more real. And I can relate more to these characters mm. than the sitcom, which felt more like, okay, that's a different world. I mean, I've been to Beverly Hills and Bel Air before, and I still never saw people act like that. So, right. Know. Well, the thing about the sitcom was it was lighthearted and it was, it was comedy, but it yeah. hit those moments that were serious that were right, hit. right. Then when right. they the happened, when they, they got were much more in. impactful, right? Because yeah. it's surrounded by the comedy. So when the serious moment happens, you're like, whoa, it really holds you. It's yeah, yeah, it, it definitely gripped more. Yeah. But I did like the parallel. In the original sitcom, uh, you see Will Smith with posters on his wall 
of sometimes underground rappers at the time. Like he had the intelligent hoodlum, the trash on there. And uh, in this version, you had uh, Carlton with an MF Doom poster on his wall. So that was kind of interesting. Yeah. But I'm, I'm enjoying it. You know, um, you can say, um, I don't want to, I don't know if people watch it. So I don't know if we want to say specific points, but, you know, I think um, Carlton's wilding. Um, <laughs> but but I can't excuse <laughs> Can't excuse that Will has overstepped and disrespected on Carlton. Um, and uh, let's find out Jeffrey's a whole goon out this place. Like, come on, what? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if y'all saw the last episode, but yeah, what? I saw that. I caught that. I caught that. You got, you got oh. blood. <laughs> you got yeah. Well, but, and, and but Jeffrey, not- but Jeffrey is like myself, Jamaican in the show. <laughs> Right, they did that change. They like, yeah, like he's Jamaican. He's not from England, you know. You know, you more like a Brixton, like a Brixton transplant, Jeffrey. This yeah, is- his demeanor is totally different. It's just yeah, like this is not like Uptown Jeffrey. Nah. So I think well, that's we are live on Facebook. So anyone out there who watched the show, give us your thoughts, along with whatever else we happen to be discussing here. On a more serious note, Michael, congratulations once again on your hard work out there in Brooklyn. Thank you. Appreciate it. Assembly member, uh, Nikki Lucas. Correct. What was that experience like for you? Were you managing the campaign? Uh, yeah. So basically, you know, I actually managed uh, Keisha Lean, who is now a sitting judge in the 7th Municipal Civil Court District in Brooklyn. Uh, a good portion of the 7th overlaps with the 60th. And Nikki actually won, um, sorry, I should say ran a very tough race for city council where she lost by just 1,100 votes against Charles Barron. And some of you may tune in and say, wow, 1,100 votes, that's a big margin. It's not if you understand the dynamics of that district and what Charles Barron kind of brings to the table. He and his wife have pretty much been seat holders between the assembly and the council going back like probably close to three decades now. And they're kind of like a household name where, you know, from uh, you know, my interaction on the ground, there are a lot of people out there who would just vote for a Barron because that's the name they knew. And so for Nikki to come that close in the council race, you know, it, that's a very good showing. It's a big feat. And, and no disrespect to the Barrons, by the way, I always tell the story. Not at all. Not at all. In Albany, people would ask me, who was the most friendly senator or assembly member? And, and believe it or not, for me, it was always Charles Barron. He was the most friendly colleague I had who was actually an elected official in Albany. Um, people might not. He's really- a unique individual. I used to really run on Fulton Street in Bed-Stuy, you know, and he would just be walking down the street by, hey, man, how you doing? Yeah. You know, so, uh, but when he gets into like the political space, it's a little bit different. And, you know, um, Nikki decides she wanted to run for assembly. And she asked me if I would be her campaign manager. And, um, you know, I saw the opportunity, you know, Nikki's been backed by the likes of Congressmember Hakeem Jeffrey in the past, who also endorsed her in this race. Uh, and, you know, me, I chase opportunity. Mike knows this about me. You know, Mike has actually been on some campaigns with me uh, in the past. So, you know, he knows how I roll, so to speak. And I thought it would be a good opportunity. And I was anticipating that we would actually be going up against Inez Barron. But, you know, the Barons decided yeah. that not going to run. What happened? Um, they've been on the switch seats between council and assembly. Why? Yeah, did- I mean, I, I don't know if, if they just I don't know if they just wanted to change, uh, but they ran a protege. Uh, right. I am by the name of Karan Allen, who uh, was a deputy committee board manager. He'd worked for Charles up in Albany. Um, but Nikki had a lot going for her in this race. So I think we just parlayed a lot of her opportunities. She had name recognition coming off a very strong performance in the city council race. Uh, she had an identifiable base. She had a number of people around her who were committed to her and helping her win uh, uniquely in this district the male and female district leaders are the barons. But interestingly, Nikki actually had run more candidates for judicial um, delegate than the barons did. So with the way that this worked, because it's a special election it, at the state level, you know, you either have to go out there and create a party name, and Mike's seen me with this before. It's actually how I first met Mike, I think, in terms of like working with Mike on another race, which had similar dynamics. You either have to uh, try and get the party line or you get an established line or you literally have to make up a line that doesn't right. sound like it and then go out there and pound the payment. Well, let's, yes. So let's talk about this because this was a special election for a state right. 
double seat. So that's different than if there was a special election for a city seat, right? We have different laws. Right. So for a city council member, for example, if they leave office in the middle of their term, oftentimes a special election is held to fill the remainder of their term. And then you have what's called a nonpartisan election where everyone has to make up their own party line and run with Correct. it. Correct. There's no, there's no yeah, established party line that's sort of like Mike for the community or whatever. Everyone has their own name. Right. Um, but that contrast, which was an assembly member had left their seat in the middle of a term. And so the special election for an assembly member is between nominees chosen by the parties. Or if you want to run as an independent, you can do that as well. But it's as, as, as if there's a general election and you already have nominees for the parties and there's no primary. So you can't go as a primary voter and pick the Democratic nominee or the Republican nominee if, if there were to be one. The party Correct. committees have to choose their candidates. And that means that it, it really turns on you having that, that influence, I guess, within the party, right? Oh, that's, oh, I, I would say, I see support, you know, and I think that, yeah. you know, there were things that I think left, like, kind of like a little bit of a bad taste in my mouth, like when I heard some people criticizing the fact that, you know, oh, she, you know, she's controlling county committee and this and the third, and I was with Nikki when she was running around all over every end of the 60th assembly district at all right. hours, you know, I had to go back and actually reacclimate myself to um, doing, what's that called again, doing mail merges, you know, to print out like the petition so that, yeah. You know, pristine, they were accurate. And then she literally got in a car, drove all over the place at all hours of the night, collecting signatures from people. Right. And, and so something she's really self-made. Say again? She's really self-made. She wasn't put off. Yeah, so then people were like, oh yeah, you know, the machine controls the petitions. I'm like, what are y'all talking about? Like, there's a lot of effort that was put into getting these pieces of paper. Right. People had to sign them. And that's, to me, that's the ultimate compliment though. I mean, she should really be flattered by that because she came in on the ground level. I mean, I'm in a similar position. I didn't, I didn't come in backed by any kind of establishment, a timid note. Right. Yeah. Working together, building what we had from nothing to the point now where if someone comes and says, oh, you know, look at you, you have too much control, influence, power. Like no one gave anything to me. I just built my support by going to the people directly. Um, right. And, and to build like county committee support in a vacuum, that's not a small undertaking. Right. Exactly. Most people have to really kind of like confide and have you know believe in you you know um and so basically they voted to make her the democratic party nominee and i think some people took issue with that next thing you know we read in the paper well you know uh the baron candidate's going to get support from the working families party mm. which was a bit unique because again if you look at you know charles is a you know very proud black socialist he has his roots as like an og black panther and i think the candidate they ran was kind of like you know espousing similar values. But then it was kind of weird because then, you know, to espouse like black socialist principles, and then you're taking support for from people who in some cases have been labeled as like quote unquote white gentrifiers in a majority minority district, a significantly my majority minority district. It's it's like it's kind of hard to reconcile that. You know was there much space in terms of policy between the candidates? Or was it more of a clash of personality? Yes, I, I would say I would probably disagree there because I think- I'm asking the question. Was there or was there not? Oh, no, yeah. I, I would say yes, there was. Okay. You know, and I'll give you an example. So, and, and this is all public because, you know, the county committee recording is out there. And when Charles kind of like was, you know, giving his, um, his speech in support of the other candidate, he touted the fact that he had a master's degree, that he had shoveled snow for senior snowed, um, and that he had actually like reconstituted some community gardens. And, you know, Nikki has a record of like getting people at night to their gas back, getting their elevators back working, working with Sarah C to prevent a rent hike, uh, yeah. to establish uh, vaccine centers during COVID, having strong relationships with like city elected officials at the federal and the state level. And again, just a lot of support literally throughout a lot large portion of the community. You know, she's a 40 year resident of Star City. So it's not like she just, you know, happened right. up. So she had the qualifications. Correct. What I'm getting at is you mentioned that the Working Families Party endorsed her opponent. And I'm just wondering, is there really a lot of daylight in terms of what both sides are trying to accomplish here? Or are we doing ourselves any favors by being at each other's throats? Or should we be trying to find that common ground? See, I think, I think what happens in a race like this, people aren't looking for the common ground, they're looking for the win. 
And I think that probably after the fact, that's probably when people will try and like find, even though I, I don't see that happening anytime soon, uh, because, you know, um, the opponent has committed to running again the primary, and then they're saying they're going to run the general again. That's mm -hmm. not the olive branch that's being extended. Uh, and, you know, the margin of victory, which is going to grow, is my prediction based on, you know, votes that haven't been counted yet um, and where Nikki's support came from. She won by like 60 percentage points. So is it trying to win then if you're going to keep running as a even as a third party in the general election and overwhelmingly Democratic district? Is that trying to win or is that just trying to prove a point? No, I think it's trying to win. I think it's a little really? bit, I think it's a little bit of both because again, you know, the Baron name is strong. And um I think that, you know, I wouldn't underestimate them. You know, I, I would not underestimate them. I think that basically. You know, there just has to be a commitment to continue to work hard until everything is all said and done. Don't take anything for granted. You know, um, you know one thing I learned working for Scott, <laughs> Scott Stringer, was like, you know, you always act like you're behind. Right. And I, everything I do with that, like, you know, because there are two ways to run. Two ways. I never got to another post. There you go. Yeah. Uh, so you, you don't want to get comfortable and complacent. You know, like you see those videos of people like, running sprints, they turn over their shoulder to see who's next to them and the person mm -hmm. that, you don't want to be that person. So, you know, you just like, you know, shore up your support, move forward and, you know, and, and do the work, you know? And I think that that in itself uh, will be formidable, but again, you don't want to take anything for granted. I mean, you look at the numbers and, you know, more people voted for the guy than are registered in the Working Families Party in the district. So somebody, you know, decided they wanted to kind of, you know, cross lines and, you don't want to take that for granted, no matter how big the margin is, because again, you don't want to, you know, have like like that Lamborghini come upon you from behind and, and and pass you. You don't want that. So your job is to make sure you're keeping your pedal mashed to the floor uh, and staying as far ahead as as that individual as you possibly can. And I think you know, um, you're seeing these dynamics now. They're they, they've called for a special in the 43rd Assembly District, which is another interesting race, uh, turning to another bit of a proxy battle over there. Where Brian Cunningham went through right. a similar that Nikki did. Uh, and Congratulations he, to Brian, too. Yeah, Brian, good guy. I've known Brian for about 10 years now. Uh, wish him well. Um, but again, if I was Brian, again, same thing. Just because you got, like, he got, like, a lion's share. Like, Nikki had over 13,000 weighted votes compared to the opponents, like, 12 or 1,300. Maybe even 1,200, because I know it was more than 10 to 1. Brian got, like, over 19,000 weighted votes. Weighted but, votes. So, you, so you're talking about when... District leaders uh, have proxies. Correct. Appointed to the county committee. The county committee members, so technically it's the county committee that is doing this vote, but many Correct. of the members aren't even going to be there. In some cases, I mean, to get cynical, I know this happens in Queens, certainly, some county committee members don't even know that they're county committee members. They're, they're put on the ballot or, or put on there by district leaders who then basically, <laughs> right? Well, it's, it's kind of they, funny they, because one they show up to the county committee meeting with, with these proxy votes, but they're, they're basically voting on behalf of other county committee members. True, and it was interesting because Nikki knew every single one of her county committee members. I don't think the folks that voted the other way, uh, and how'd she put it? She said, yeah, you know, I know that some of the folks don't know their county committee members. You know why? Because I reached out to them too. <laughs> right. <laughs> so right. it happens, you know? Um, so, you know, there's precedent for that. It does happen. Uh, they had a good showing in Brooklyn though. I think there were over hundred people that showed up for that meeting. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, it's going to be interesting. It's going to be another fight, um, you know, and we'll see because I get the impression that the dynamics there are somewhat different. You know, I, I'm just kind of like observing that from the outside right now and just to see what they bring to the table for the special, which is actually in, um, I think it's a month from today, if I'm not mistaken. I believe it's March 22nd. Um, oh. You know, we'll see if they, you know, step on the gas all the way. Or yeah. Again, you kind of like test the waters to see what you're going to do for June. Right. And on. So it's very interesting. And again, and that's an interesting, interesting point in itself. You've got three elections for the same seat in the same year, right? Yeah. Is yeah. That the taxpayer money. Should we be doing it that way? Um, I mean, gee, that's probably a question about my pay grade. I mean, it is what it is right now. I think, you know, um, it was kind of interesting because I think that we want to look for ways to make voting easier, but there were even right. things in like the special that we just came up with. Like, for example, early voting had two poll sites. Mm -hmm. sites was outside the physical boundaries of the district where the kids were running. I've never seen that before, you know? Um, 
So you see things like that and you say, gee, does that make sense? Uh, probably not. But, you know, can you change it? If so, yeah, I, I think maybe if there are ways to make the process more efficient, let's look at that. But I think it has to be fair and everybody has to be on the same page again, because, you know, you don't want things driven by agendas or, right. you know, you, you want people to have like the fair shake, you know, so. Absolutely. Well, you and I, Michael, we're both county committee members in Queens, which Correct. is a little bit different from, from Brooklyn. Uh, right. <laughs> I mean, one of which in a district like my own, the Republicans are competitive. In fact, we have a Republican in, this, in the council seat right now. We've had prior as well. So in the district in East New York, for example, you can have third parties running. You can have splits in the Democratic Party. It's not going to make a difference. You know that a Democrat is going to win at the end of the day. That's not always the case in the city. It's certainly not. Uh, in, in my well, we, just, we just saw that in June. <laughs> you know, the, the Republicans picked up, what, three seats in the council? You mean last year? Uh, June, yeah, June. Of yeah, yeah, last year, yeah, 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 yeah. This past year, right. June, November, I should say. Yeah, right, right. Um, so, should we be doing more then to try to bring people together? I mean, because these divisions that we see are, are very detrimental, especially if you're a Democrat, right? I, I think we should. I think it's it's an easy thing to say, though. It's harder to do because again, there's a lot of agendas that are driving some of these decisions. Uh, and you've got some folks that, that, you know, they're just trying to like grab power. You know, some folks are speaking on behalf of neighborhoods that they know nothing about. They don't look like them. They don't represent those neighborhoods, but they may see opportunity to grab legislative power. And that becomes what's driving people. Because, I mean, you can't tell me that you're speaking on behalf of like people of color. And when I show up to where your groups are, <laughs> there are no people of color there with you. It doesn't make sense. You know, and I was outspoken, as you know, during the uh, the Cats Caban race, and that yeah. was one criticism. You're speaking for all the people who are incarcerated, but why is it that anybody who's around you doesn't look like any? I worked on Rikers for like eight years. How come is it? How, why is it that I don't see anyone around you reflective of the folks I saw when I worked inside? But you're speaking for them. So how are you getting? You know, how are they advising you? Well, it sounds yeah. like what you're saying is if, if we want bridges to be built, folks have to put the effort into building the bridge. Correct. And it, and it becomes hard because, again, you know, there's a lot of, like, disharmony. Right. Yeah. I want to build and a bridge to a neighborhood that, like, where I think the people can't stand me. <laughs> you know, we, we got to get by a few things first before I think we can get to that point. You also have many districts around the city that are not monolithic by any means. And so they're, they're just so, so different. How do you have one person represent them all or try to bring people with such diverse interests together and find that common ground? It's not an easy thing to do. Well, I think that's also interesting, especially with the conversations happening right now with redistricting. You know, you look at like New York 3, which is like goes from Suffolk all the way up to like lower Westchester. I've never seen it's it. It's a five county district, right? I believe so. It's like, powers, I think. Like this before <laughs> my true. life. Yeah, I know. Um, and you talk about like a you know a disparate district. That's one of them. You know, and there are a few that are like that. Like you look at what's happening now with some of these newly created districts, like you know, um, Senate District Seventeen, which is a new seat. It, mm -hmm. It's like a microcosm of Queens. You know, you've got Richmond Hill and kind of like what's that? Is that Middle Village above it or Woodhaven? Uh, Q Gardens, it goes into Q Gardens, Woodhaven, and the kind of uh, well. Greenpoint. Well, yes, yeah. so it's only Greenpoint, and Greenpoint is like you know, heavily like you know, left leaning and younger and Richmond immigrant. It's a very interesting district. It's going to be interesting to see how that race plays itself out. Um, you know, you've got like Kathy Nolan who's retiring. Kathy's a good friend. I wish her all the best with everything that she's going through. But now, you know. Some folks have dropped out of that race for, I'm not sure what, like, what's the guy's name? Uh, Turbovax. <laughs> you know, he was in the race. Now he's out of the race. Uh, Mary, who had ran before she's out of the race. You know, um, I believe uh, Juan Ardilla now is vying for that seat. And I'm not sure whoever else. I've heard, like, rumors that maybe even Jimmy may vie for the seat. Um, so again, Yeah, we'll see. We'll, we'll see how it plays yeah, we'll out. See how plays out. all these seats. You, you, you're looking at, we go back to what was the New York Three with uh, Biagi trying to on to long yeah. after, some pushback and that goes back Doesn't to receive well <laughs> kind of maybe being out of touch with an area that you're trying to serve but when the area is that vast geographically how can you be in touch with all of it right, yeah. right. down that whole 
area. And you got to pay a toll. <laughs> Right. Literally. Yeah, I think, like, um, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting to see how to yeah. Timmy, what are your thoughts on all I was gonna say, well on something like like that when it's so vast and wide, and I think uh, Michael touched on on it in a question that um how do you how do you reach out to something when it's that vast and wide? And I think for the candidate would have to be on their team building, on who they have around them, who they have advising them that's representative of those places that they're seeking to to be a represent uh, representative for um karen on the on the point you were talking about uh, karen in the chat said that lower manhattan is now staten island represented in the assembly yeah i saw that <laughs> so, it, i mean somebody i mean we'll see what happens you know that's going to be a competitive race now and there's been so many rumors about who's running who's not you know you got max maliotakis and at one point oh de is going to run and he's not then Biden's going to run. I'm not sure if that's still in play. I think Max Rose has a good chance at winning that seat back, but we'll see. I think it depends on how many other people jump into that race, though, personally. Yeah, that's um, right. You know, because once you get, like, you know, these races with, like, candidates, remember, the vote margins just, like, drop precipitously. But then, right, because we don't have ranked choice voting on, on state or Correct. elections, that does a big difference. You could have someone winning a seat who really is only in touch maybe with a small base. Maybe it's a, a sizable base in their neighborhood, but maybe they, they might be out of touch with the, the rest of the district because they can win with such a small margin when you have a lot of candidates running and splitting the votes up. Definitely, yeah. Uh, all right, well, we wanted to talk about crime. I know crime is on everyone in New York. It is a serious issue. We, we are seeing spikes in violent crime. Um, shootings, murder, it's, it's scary. There's a poll that came out, the Quinnipiac poll, earlier this month that says 74% of New Yorkers say that crime is a major issue, major problem in the city. That's the first time in history that it reached that level. It was never above 50% before. So it's, it's a big spike in the way people are feeling. And there's always controversy about, number one, why is the crime rate up? And number two, and maybe more importantly, how do we address it? What should we do? But you can't answer number two, I don't think, unless you really have an understanding of number one. So what do we think about all this? Yeah, there was just a um, a news story recently with someone with a big stabbing that took place in a subway or something like a couple yeah. of days ago. It's crazy. It seems like it's constant. Honestly, Tim, it feels like every day there's something and we're seeing police shootings and all kinds of incidents. Um, and people are scared. People are fed up. People want something to be done. But again, what is the root cause of this? You know, in my opinion, you can't really address the issue unless you have some kind of understanding as to right. I think it's probably, a, it's, I mean, obviously it's going to be a mix of a bunch of different things um, and, uh, you know, just general conditions. I'm sure COVID plays some sort of a factor. The general um, atmosphere, polarization of, of, of the atmosphere, not just in politics, but in, in society in general with people taking such extreme positions on everything. Yeah. And then, you know, just there's a lot of frustration. There's a lot of, um, you know, anger and, and, and things so and that that tends to contribute to people acting out or doing you know wild kind of things yeah i, th I think you know again we we have to look at all also the adverse impacts of COVID, not just the health wise but i mean economically it's really not yes. a loop you know a yeah. lot of people have not gone back to work um it's interesting my nephew's father-in-law who was out in philly and we were having this debate, and he said, like, you know, what's fueling a lot of the violence from his perspective, I don't know if this is accurate, but this is basically what um, he believes, and he's very involved with the criminal justice system in Philly. He actually works for Larry Krasner out there, so he has a good, you know, sense of, like, what's going on. He said, like, you know, a lot of the gang activity justice system in Philly fueled by um, being pent up, they're inside, they're, and they just, like, start online beefs, and then by the time it transfers to the street, there's no discussion. Yeah, you just start like you know letting lead fly it's a little bit crazy yeah so i think that's one factor um you know i do think you know uh i believe that stop and frisk you know me personally i believe i push back from this from other folks that i think that done in the way in the manner in which it was intended which is really stop questioning frisk i know a lot of the young people like they always throw barbs at me it's like, no acab all cops are bad and all that stuff i don't believe that 
And I think that what's happened is with the advent of the removal of stop and frisk completely, some brothers are no longer afraid to hold. They used to keep it close before, but now they hold it. You know, so when something jumps off, they don't have to go looking for it. They just go in their waistband and start letting off. You know, and we've seen a lot of shootings now just in broad daylight. I mean, I can't recall shooting back in the crack epidemic. I don't recall this many daylight shootings, you know, like this. Never seen it like this before. I wanna I wanna just one one uh thing there, and I'm sure you you, you said it um just kind of just as as a matter of talking, but um he says some brothers um, aren't afraid to hold anymore. I want to make it clear that it's, it's not just brothers holding guns out there. So, um, no, nah, well, I mean, yeah, it's, it's just yeah, like, I know, like, the, you know what I mean? The way we talk, but some shooters, people will listen to that and be like, right. see, he's talking about no, 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 guns. no, no, yeah. shooters are not afraid to hold. And basically, right, right, cause race, ethnicity, gender, right. religion. you know, we had uh, the other day, I, yeah, but I also, I mean, obviously, there are a lot of factors here, but I don't know if I would attribute it to stop and frisk. I wouldn't either. No, but to me, I mean, to me personally, and having worked inside, I know a lot of guys yeah. would talk to me. And if they feel that there's going to be a chance, they're going to have to do time because they get holding, they're not keeping it on their person. And so I'm speaking from like my own personal anecdotal experience with people who I've known who are not necessarily, you know, the angels of society. Right. Yeah. That when you take that away, if I'm if I know that you know no one's going to be checking me for this. When I worked at the in um on Jerome Avenue up in the Northwest Bronx, I remember we were walking through the corridor on Jerome Avenue one day with the uh, the then inspector of the 52nd precinct, Joe Dowling, and we're like looking at the streetlights to see where we should be positioning security can. Joe just walks up to this guy, excuse me, he goes and starts grabbing around the guy's waistband, and like what are you doing? He's like, oh, I, th I thought he was carrying. So, you know, there's a different mindset that some people are just not exposed to, I think, that some people in law enforcement, I think, know that at times if people feel that there's a chance that they're going to get in trouble because they get caught with a weapon, they're less likely to carry that weapon directly on their person. Back in the day, if you recall, you go to the club and like guys would give their girls weapons because the girls were not, they wouldn't search a girl's purse. You know, so I think- that Don't you think- if someone is trying to attack someone, they're going to do it regardless of whether they think they're, they're going to be stopped and frisked or, or searched. I mean, it's, it's it's not like people just kind of shooting people on the street, are they? It seems to me that- No, some of these things are random shootings on the street. <laughs> I think think really? seen like, like someone brushes into someone the wrong way and then now we have a shooting? I mean, it's, We saw that the other day. There was a guy from sanitation, I don't know if you saw that, broad daylight in Hell's Kitchen. The guy got into what I believe it was like his daughter's ex ex boyfriend. He was pummeling the guy, kicking him. The guy went back to his car with his boy. They had some words, and the guy held off, and then he shot him in his leg. Broad daylight. Catch he went back to his car to get a gun. I don't know if he actually went back to the car to get the gun. And that part's a little bit. Hey, he may have had it on him, but long story, he didn't just whip it out and start firing. He mm -hmm. took some time in between the time. That's my firing. point. But that's my point, right? I mean. Maybe there's an element of the guns being more readily available now if they keep them closer. But at the end of the day, if you want to attack someone, you're going to do it regardless. I don't think people are saying, well, the. I'm not saying you're not going to do it. I'm saying it's going to be less effort if you've got a gun in your waistband versus if you have a gun under a brick at the corner. That's what I'm saying. It, will, get, it will give you some, uh, some uh, ex what, exacerbated courage. <laughs> yeah. Um, um, and that point to be more willing to 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 step out on somebody because you you got the heat on you basically. And so I guess you don't subscribe to the theory then that we're safer if more people are armed. I I don't subscribe to that. I don't subscribe. I don't I don't either. I just want to make but sure. I think the that mentality page. of having to care, feeling like you have to carry it, or the mentality of 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 going there immediately, that's something that needs to be dealt with and curbed. Um, because you know, like you said. If you're going to attack someone, you're going to attack someone. Um, but if you feel you got to carry and, and you have to shoot somebody, like, why do you feel that way? What's put you in that position? What's got society in the air in that position that makes you think, I need to, I need to pop off on somebody? Or is there an I, element I have a question. of I have a question more people for have guns, and so I got to do something, or he's going to do something to me. Right. But I have a question for Timmy, right? Because you live in Japan right now for the past eight years, and, and guns are outlawed in Japan, correct? 
Um, for all intents and purposes, yeah. I mean, you can still get a gun, but the way um, hand, personal handguns are not really a thing. It's more for hunting. Um, but even in that case, the, you have to go through a lengthy process involving the police department where you actually have to go through classes with the police department to, to be able to, to take possession of a gun. Um, but for all intents and purposes, they're, they're pretty much not non-existent in the public and um, nobody, nobody carries, some of the police don't even carry um, guns out here. So gun violence is not really a thing. Do you think that what you see in Japan could be adopted in the United States given the also have like a pretty big gun culture? I think what the United States is gonna, the, the problem with that to try to adopt it in the States is because guns are such an integral part of our culture. Um, I mean, it's it's been in our, from our literature to, to our history, like, I mean, literally like how the West was won is because of, of guns and it was a, a means of survival and whatnot. And that's just translated down the line. And then we've got the constitutional questions. So it's gonna be, a difficulty to do it. I think it's it's possible, but it's it's a it'd be a hard thing. I don't I don't think eliminating guns is going to solve the problems that we have in the United States. That's causing people to go and grab them, you know. Um, and I think that's what needs to be dealt with. But I do want to make a point about the availability of guns because you always see people saying. I disagree with this. I think the facts don't support this point, but people are always trying to make the point that if you have stricter gun laws, all you're doing is hurting people who are law abiding because the criminals don't care. They, they get guns anyway. People will say that, but that's not really accurate because if you look at the guns that are recovered that were used to commit crimes in New York, they're almost all from states originally where the gun laws are lax. They're coming from Virginia, North Carolina, Pennsylvania, to some extent. You could look at the stats. And so it is a matter of availability because people are getting these guns at some point from a place where it's easy to get them, then they're being trafficked illegally. Right. If you are stricter on the laws, that affects availability and that will reduce the amount of people who do have guns. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, it, and it does, like people say, like, you know, well, what about responsible gun owners? And that's, and that's fine. But I think the question becomes like, um, yes, we have the, the, the right to bear arms, we have the right to have guns, and there are responsible gun owners, but as a society, if we're looking at the gun violence and the mass shootings, we are obviously not, I guess, mature enough to handle that right, because if you look at where, where our statistics are with gun violence, you know, we have to take a look at ourselves and be like, look, as a society, maybe that's not where we're, we're at. We, you know, we can't handle it yet. We need to mature. Let's see, Karen's not an easy question. <laughs> no, it's not. Have other societies matured to the point where they can have guns? You think? I mean, because these other societies don't have them the way we do. Except no, I don't think there's a lot of guns, right? But mostly for hunting. Yeah, I don't think a lot of places have um, have guns, at least not the way that we do. Um, and what was it? Australia got rid of theirs. There was a mass shooting right. years back, and they were just like, "All right, that's it. That's enough." No and thoughts and prayers. They got them down to action, right? Yeah, and they got rid of it, and they haven't had you know gun violence since. Um, and society's been fine. So, I mean, but people didn't revolt the way they would in the U.S. Let's be honest. I mean, oh they, yeah, they, they would get their no, guns. My gun, my gun. <laughs> they gave them up. They would. No, people would literally. People would get their they guns. Would get I mean, their guns. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's a difference. I mean, United States has these. You know, I mean, guns is a religion in the United States. And when I talk to people from different countries who look at the United States and they're like, you know, they don't get it with the guns, um, you know, and I have to, you know, say like, I understand what they're saying, but also being from the United States, I'm like, I don't think we should eradicate the guns because I guess it's part of what we know growing up that it's, you know, but even with the proliferation of all those guns out there, I will say, and I've probably outside of military or police officers, I've only seen one gun, um, a personal gun in my life. People have this and, idea that if you come to America, you're gonna see guns all day long. Right, so people out here that they think that like, oh yeah, 
that's that's been around me everywhere and i'm just like nah i've really only seen one in my my life and i guess it depends on where you're at but like right you know it's but, sad i mean yeah. i even heard a story of a tourist coming in i'm not sure if they were from japan but there was a tourist coming to the u.s asking around what's the best place i can go to see a shootout <laughs> it's an ignorant question what? that's what they thought they thought coming to the u.s they were going to see that everywhere and that was gonna be a part of their vacation they were going to observe an american shootout I mean, listen, U.S. overseas, there is a sentiment here in Japan um, in the last several years where some people are afraid to visit the U.S. because of the gun violence. Um, and and the police and and the police violence and people, you know, some are afraid to visit the U.S. They're looking at other places. There's no easy answers for this one, for sure. That's well, I also have to bring up the point because people are going to comment if we don't there are a lot of people and, and in my opinion it's fear-mongering but a lot of people are, are trying to blame the increase of crime on bail reform so what do we say about that i think that you have to look at the actual data um you know i think there was um the young woman who was unfortunately killed uh you know in this spat of like anti-Asian violence, which is like, that's, I, I can't even wrap my head around that, man. It's like just nuts. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it was shown that bail reform was not why he was out on the street. And I think that we have to really take a hard look at what laws are being impacted by bail reform. And I think that's another, uh, another one of those bridges that needs to be built because there's some serious vitriol out oh, yeah. there, you know, between an elected official who would tend to be, in most cases, like-minded, we're kind of going at each other right now. Uh, I think we need to take a hard look at the data and see, okay, you know what? Who's really, because again, people tend to forget that bail is just supposed to be a guarantee that you show up to court. <laughs> right. Sorry. Right. You know, um, but I think that there have been some unfair practices that have, the optics have played out because some people have money, some people don't, you know, and, um, it's a tough call. I think there's certain crimes, though, that, you know, like, I remember back on Rikers, man, one guy once told me, he said, yeah, it's like, you know what, I need to be locked up. And people have heard me on Twitter and elsewhere, and I was like, what do you mean? He goes, my job, hurt you and harm your family. He told me that was his job. His job was to harm your family. My job is to hurt you and harm your family. I need to be wow. his exact words, right? Mm -hmm. The kind of life experience that I personally experienced is not no anecdote. No one told me this. And I was around what I'll describe as some very bad people back in the days. And what, what was wild to me was some of the hardest criminals that I met on Rikers were some of the nicest people you ever want to meet. Mm -hmm. They had nothing to prove to anybody. I killed five people, so what? Right. I don't have to act like a... Where you had the other guys now who, in some cases, were not that violent. Chip on their shoulder. To try and, like, keep people off of them. Yeah. You know? But uh, I, I think we need to take a serious look at what charges are contributing to crime. Because again, like I said, I'm a firm believer. I don't think we should have to lock people up, but you know what? We have some people who are not programmed properly. And as long as there's like hate and all that other stuff out there and people who are like having mental illness, you can't just not do anything. So the problem is we're so polarized now politically, it's hard right. to have these conversations in a serious nuanced way. Because if anyone says something, makes any point like the point you made, the point like Tibbet has been making or like I've been making, there are going to be people jumping down our throats saying that we're not checking all the right boxes, we're not right. the right things. And then you can't get to a, a productive solution that way if you're just yelling at each other, if, if you're leading with emotion, as opposed to trying to address this seriously, because it, it's never really all or nothing. I mean, I, I think we always have to try to find some compromise or, or, or look at it uh, from all perspectives here, right? You can't, we can't have tunnel vision with one and I think that people, you can't look at bail reform in a vacuum. Right. Bail reform and policing itself go hand in hand, in my opinion. Right. Right. You know, because should guys be just left to their own vices to kind of like just rifle through the CVS to the point we went to um, my nephew got married in Philly and we went over to like a Rite Aid in Camden right across the bridge. Bro, they had everything locked up. The toothpaste was locked up. The soap, I mean, everything. I'm like, who wants to live like this? Well, some people will say that they're doing that now because they're not prosecuting or, or even arresting people 
for petty theft anymore. And but so, that's my point. Where where's the balance there? Do you just yeah. let do you unlock everything and let somebody walk through with a bag and just like clean the shelf off and walk out the door? Right. That's not that happening in Cali. Yeah. That was happening in Cali, wasn't it? it it's, like, it's been it, happening. Well, it's happened in New York. It's happening. There's one guy in the Jackson Heights. I think it was a Walgreens. The guy's been like arrested for like 47 times. Like literally like picking the shelves clean. Yeah. In San I Francisco would happen where a guy came on a bicycle and a man just kind of like stood there. Right. Because he couldn't do anything. <laughs> do anything. There was a Target that was robbed, I think, over 100 times by the same person recently. So, so how do you address that? You know, what's the answer? I mean, I don't know what the answer that is, but it, it, I wouldn't want to own that business. Right. Then, then that kind of like morphs into like what I think is a misdirected conversation about the ills of capitalism. Hmm. I mean, I, I guess I think, connected, but not in the way that people want to make you think. You know, I think that's a point, too. Say again? Um, I said, I think that's a, that's a point, too. Like, uh, as far as you said, like, you know, addresses different ills. Um, these types of measures or bills or even bail reform or, or, you know, changing laws here, like, we have to understand that it's not a single solution. It's, it is an ongoing process. So, like you said, you, you, you know, you don't think we, you don't want to be locking people up. Yeah. But, you know, we have to, to look at, like you said, there's some bad people out there. So until we deal with the, the situations that cause those bad people to be that type of people, we have to have some measures in place to protect other people in the meantime. Maybe at some point in the future, right. we can get to that point where we've created a society where these types of people are created few and far between, but we're not completely there yet. And but that's why it's not either or. I think that's a very strong point because, like, I always say, this is not a switch. No, right. People right. are like, oh, defund the police and put the money in the social programs. And then what do you do with all the people that are like still like bad actors? Well, I think I think the defund the police is kind of funny. And someone in the chat actually mentioned that um that slogan. And Mike, you and I have talked about it before. It's it's a bad slogan. Like that's a horrible, that's a god awful slogan, <laughs> and it doesn't speak to what they're actually talking about. It's like right. you know, it doesn't give you like any that. information really as to what you might be trying to do because there are good ideas out there, and we've discussed that. Absolutely, if you're leading with defund, and, and especially if you're leaving it there, you, you might not have any idea. You might just want to abolish the police. You could be anywhere on that spectrum. You're not saying what you really want. Exactly. Right. I mean, it's like yeah, let's take away let's take away the funding or, or or the military weapons that some police departments are having. Okay. Yeah, that, that's that's a bit much. Point that out. Say that. Yeah. Don't just say defund the police. Like yeah, say that. Can, yeah. So I have a cousin who lives across the street, and he has some like you know some psychological challenges, and he's known to like you know law enforcement because sometimes he acts out a bit. And one day they showed up. It looked like they were invading a small country. Right. I mean, they had truck nine. They had like three RMPs. They had um, five FDNY ESU show. It was crazy. They had. On Rikers, we used to call them the Ninja Turtles, or you know, when the uh, the the officers come out like with the full riot gear. Yeah, the riot gear. Yeah, yeah right. right. Like two dozen of them. I'm like, and my wife goes by, like, get away from the window, because that's how you become a news story. But this is a kid mm. who doesn't carry weapons, so this this show of force was like, what, what y'all just get all the stuff y'all want to test to see if it works, but ah. grossly inappropriate in terms of a response for the situation. I'm like, I've never seen anything like that before. It's it's this. You know, so so that yeah, don't show up to my you know, don't show up with like an armored vehicle on my quiet tree line street. Don't do that. Right. So I think again, it's, it's about balancing and finding that common ground. Right. I mean, and and I know this support. firsthand. It's not easy to find that common ground. That's what I'm saying, right? And I, I, that's why he said, "How do we do it?" You voted for Scala. <laughs> that's right. And then, and then on the other side, though, the support for you know taking the the looking at it from the police point of view. I don't think police officers should be showing up for mental illness calls. That's not what they're trying People should for. at least have the option because I know some people who right. have mental health concerns with their family. Some people right. have sons who need help and they get out of control. They need to call some somebody. They would like to be able to dial 911 and get a professional, a mental health professional, not a right. officer coming up to their house with a gun who could end up harming that child because that police officer is not properly trained in those mental health issues. Right, and it's putting more pressure on the police uh, more responsibilities on them in some cases that you know that really shouldn't be on them like they've got other things that they should be focused on and you know when you're a, when you're a hammer everything's a nail you know what i mean so mm. when they show up this is a criminal situation to them 
and right. it's not it's necessarily what's necessary. So I think that message needs to be, if you're going to say defund the police, but that's what's all in the message. Like your slogan doesn't match that. Right. Not at all. Yeah. And it is, listen, I, I can say from being in, in Japan, I, I spent a lot of time in Tokyo. Tokyo is a, a major city, world city on the same level as New York, um, you know, size wise, density is probably a little bit more dense. And, you know, it is a culture difference, but it just shows that there is a possibility that people can live in that kind of proximity and have less crime, have less of these, these issues. Um, it's, but they're just some things that we have to address to make that shift to, to, to go on that journey. Yeah, I think you said, well like, or it depends on like what kind of support you can put for right. those um, social problems that are like leading to these larger social problems. So, but again, look at the short term solutions as well as the long term. Correct. Right. I mean, it has, they, it's like this Everyone is like wants this crime spike to be addressed, right? But the question is, okay. That might be a band-aid solution, but what do we do long-term to prevent it from happening again and keep it under control? So this should be more like two trains running on parallel tracks, like I one, agree. the other one versus one train just like in, in back of another one. Or, 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 or what we have now, which is two trains colliding into each two other. Two trains, exactly. It'll right. Of course. Exactly. Right. Yeah. Karen, Karen in the chat has a, mentioned a few things here, talking about uh, the NYPD union is dangerously manipulative um talking about the judicial systems broken um there's a lot of good points here and and corrected corrected one of uh, mentioned a point on my point about tokyo saying that tokyo is kind of a homogenous city so it's the culture is a little bit different which is very true there is the you know some of that tension can be um an intermix of cultures but mm. my point was more that you know it is possible to have various amounts of people, massive amounts of people, and to, to kind of do this uh, in a better way. Do you think, though, that that's, I mean, I, I don't know the stats, I guess, enough, at least not broken down that way, to know, I mean, how much of it is, we might not really ever be able to tell, how much of it is people clashing because they're culturally different versus... Well, I think, if, if I'm not mistaken, the, the actual crime statistics seem to show that um, racial groups tend to commit crime within their racial group more than that interracial. Is certainly so white true. people commit crimes against white people, you know, uh, black people commit crimes more against black people, um, right. especially in, in the murder statistics that, that I've, I've read. Um, well, you would expect that, though, because we're so segregated. That's something that doesn't... Exactly. People right. talk about New York City being so diverse, and it is. Queens, the most diverse county, I think, on the mainland U.S. It's very siloed. Even within Queens, very segregated. People. Very siloed. Yes, right. yes. And that's something that's often pointed out, but it's true. Right, yeah. In fact, I just saw an article recently that said that uh, Brown v. Board of Education, which suppo supposedly ended anti segregation in public schools, is still, <laughs> the public school system in New York State is still very segregated. Right, yeah. I think they say that New York has the most segregated school system in the, in the nation, if I'm not yes. I've, I've read that. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I know there are lots of reason still... because the neighbors are so, so segregated. So, right. Yeah. And then, and I think that, that, you know, that's part of it. I think people just tend to be around people who have on the same wavelength as them to some degree. Yeah. Some of it's economic. Some of it is, you know, goes back because of, uh, you know, in the days when immigration was coming immigrants were coming through and they would settle into their their areas the, the little Italy's little the Chinatowns and you know all of that type of thing um but you know. and to a degree that that still happens right now and it's just morphing like you know um you look at like say Hillside Avenue it's like there's like a a, a large Bangladesh community that's just like developed over there in a short space of time you know you go up to Woodlawn in the Bronx it's still, it, I know there's a bar up there, I believe it still exists, where they would tell you if you left Ireland, as soon as you get off the plane, you go to that bar and they'll sit you with a job and housing. Mm. Well, because yeah. it's, it's, it's still very tight knit that way. You right. know, Arthur Avenue used to be more Italian, now there's a lot of Albanian influence there. You know, mm. so these uh, pockets of community still exist. Right. Oh, definitely. Right. And, and it's not all bad either. I mean, it's no, not, no, no, not at all. Not all bad. I'm just saying. Because we preserve our culture through generations. Absolutely. 
they're just like isolated. You know what I mean? Right. Uh, right. No, absolutely. And I think the, the younger people are doing a lot of the mixing. Um, and you know, those yeah. those those types of uh kind of barriers don't see don't exist as much as the generations move on, you know. Yeah, I see that in my own household, like my uh my youngest son, his girlfriend, um, she's white and Chinese. Mm. My older son's wife is Guyanese and Dominican. <laughs> you know, so you know, we're seeing that. You know, yeah. So yeah, natural question. Yeah. I think it's a it, and that's a good thing. I think, you know. So it's good to have our own cultures, but it's also good to be exposed and interacting with other cultures. Because right? yeah, you know what the thing is problems happen when people are strangers to one another. Exactly. exactly. Those exactly. like mixing of the cultures kind of like you're no longer a stranger. You know, like you know, exactly. not like this mystique, you know, mysterious kind of like person that I don't understand. Oh wow, you're a person just like me. You know, exactly, exactly. And that's that's a lot of things that we've talked to talked about out here um, uh, when we've been because recently, since the George Floyd thing and and my involvement with uh, Black Lives Matter Tokyo out here, some of it's been educating. Um, the Japanese public um, about us and just about racial issues and, and things in general. And it's because there's a lot of, uh, I, would, I guess ignorance is kind of the word, they're just unknowing of certain things and other cultures and other people. So there's a, there, there is a fear from people in the Japanese, uh, I guess, Japanese citizens in general, sometimes of foreigners in general, not just black people, but foreigners in general because they're from different places. But if you get to know people, those, you know, and they get to know them, especially on a personal level, um, those differences fade away because then you start seeing people as people. Those walls break down. Yeah. But, you know, to bring it back to the larger conversation, obviously this isn't just a cultural problem, right? It's not like we're seeing a bunch of cultures clashing in New York. Crime, right. And, and like we pointed out, it's, it's people are still in their own areas committing crimes on, on each other. so. Right. It's much larger than this. Yeah. Economic. Yeah. 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 I think economic is probably one of the biggest factors in general. Well, um, not even with the, the, yeah, I've always looked at the unemployment rate and the rate of the economy, and I've always been able to draw a connection between those factors and the crime rate. Even when you look at people blaming very hyper-local issues, they're not zooming out enough and looking at the larger picture. You know, you saw, for example, um, crime... Uh, under Giuliani, for example, Giuliani was mayor. People gave him all the credit for uh, improving the crime rate in the city. But what was happening with the larger economy when Bill Clinton was in office? Uh, when people right. like getting jobs and, and making more money, yes, that, that has a direct correlation with crime in the city. People, people always want to blame or, or, or credit the mayor of the city when you might want to look at the national economy and, and other factors and, and just that. Karen, we have record low. Uh, chat message: We have record low unemployment right now. But that, but that doesn't tell the whole story, though. Right. Do you really want to say that we have a good economy right now? <laughs> exactly. And and hurting from COVID. And unemployment, by the way, is people who are looking for who don't have jobs and they're looking for jobs actively. They actually stopped. Right. right. What about people who are who are now just committed to the gig economy? Trying to make it as an Uber driver or what, you know, whatever they're doing in their house. Or they're underemployed, or those underemployed. aren't jobs, or those aren't jobs that are like livable wage jobs. Yeah. Yep. Right. So a lot of different factors there. And people are hurting. People are still hurting economically. Absolutely. COVID. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So it's a great discussion. Any closing thoughts before we wrap this up? And anything we discussed? Um, yeah, a lot man. of work to be done. <laughs> a lot of work to be done, for sure. Yes. But it is possible. I think people need to understand. Conversations like this. I mean, as long as we can not be at each other's throats and have productive conversations and right. really introduce various points of view and try to find common ground. I mean, we, we shouldn't always be on the defensive where it's like we're always attacking each other for, for having a nuanced opinion. We need more nuance. Right. Absolutely. Yeah, it's yeah. interesting because I look at like my Twitter presence versus my clubhouse. Presence. There were certain people that when they heard me actually articulate positions, it wasn't like in 140 characters or whatever they gave me. <laughs> Two minutes. 
240 characters limited. I wrote away. a whole article about that. Yeah. Like, wow, this guy actually kind of makes sense. He's not like this troll that I thought he would. I mean, there's probably some people that still think, oh, yeah, he's a troll on, you know, whatever. But people kind of like, when you get a chance to have this dialogue, and maybe that's something you want to think about for a future episode, you know, because there are a number of people who are not like minded, who I know are in this same space who would probably be willing to at least have like a constructive dialogue. They're not looking just to kind of like have a shouting match, you know? And, right. Uh, but um, and I think until we can have those conversations, those bridges will not be built. Right. Especially now with not even just in politics, but in, in general, people are taking, taking sides. They're taking up their own flag on various different issues, right? You've got the far left, you've got the far right, you know, you've got various uh, LGBT issues, you've got various immigrant things, you've got, you know, everyone's got their, their issue, and it's an all or nothing thing, there's not, there's no discussion going on, it's like either you're with what I'm talking about, or you're the enemy, and I'm going to shout you down and burn your children, like, it's, and Twitter <laughs> magnifies that effect, because you can't explain yourself, you've got to just put your short statement out there, and the shorter and more concise and more it is, the more tweets and love you can get on it, and we and it's impersonal. It's impersonal. Like, you know, um, with when you're talking to someone directly, you know, there, there's going to be a different feel than if you're just cold reading um, some text on a screen, you know, you know, you, you can get a little bit, a little bit braver, you can get a little bit wilder, um, or you can misread the, the, the tone of the thing, depending on your own personal bias of what you think they're going to say to you. So, you know, Right. And then you think of the person as that message instead of a whole person right, with their own thoughts and opinions and feelings. And it's no, it's just they yeah. become that message that you don't like. Yeah. Or you've got a block in your, your head yourself that anything that doesn't say exactly what you want to say is automatically discarded and you don't hear any of it. Yeah. So. Well, we have to do better. So let's strive to keep building these bridges. Thank you, Michael. I know you're doing a lot of that work yourself. We really appreciate everything. Thanks, man. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity uh, to be a part of the group tonight. Yes, sir. Yeah, appreciate it. Definitely. It's a good chat. All right, everyone. Have a good night. We'll see you next time. Peace. <laughs>